Welcome to another in our leadership series, another episode. And my guest today is Brendan Walsh. Brendan, I met many years ago when he was working at Oracle, and he's had an incredibly fascinating journey since then from big, big enterprise company into startup mode, working out of his kitchen in London through IPO. Now he's EVP of a company called Miracle, which you'll tell us all about in a moment. And Brendan and I will be exploring that journey, what he's learned, the obstacles he had to overcome, and also talk about topics that are relevant to leaders today. Uh, hiring, diversity, how you keep a workforce motivated. Brendan, you're very welcome. Thank you, Paul. Great to see you again. Great to see you again. Brendan, I'd, I'd like to start a little bit. Tell us about your about Miracle, because uh, I'm not sure too many people may have heard of it uh, on the call today. Yeah, perfect. So, so Miracle are a marketplace technology company. So essentially, we enable our clients um, who are generally retailers, manufacturers, or even pure players, launch marketplace initiatives um, as they really think about how they transform their legacy business um, and serve their clients in, in, in new ways that are that are constant with kind of how customers want to engage with organizations today. So I think when you think of a marketplace, everybody thinks Amazon, um, and that's absolutely correct. Amazon is, is a phenomenal example of a marketplace play today. But if you look at organizations that are moving in that direction, um, it's a very fast growing trend. Uh, Miracle as a company are headquartered in Paris. Uh, my role is executive vice president for EMEA, so we've just opened offices in London, in Barcelona, in Munich, in Milan, Stockholm, Amsterdam. So very much one of those hyper growth SaaS companies, uh, but headquartered in Europe, which is, which is unique to my previous experiences. Can you give us a, a use case of, uh, for Miracle, maybe an example of a company and the transition they went through and how you enable that? Yeah, absolutely. So for any uh, listeners in London or in the UK, they're probably familiar with a company called Jules, um, very traditional retailer, um, great kind of brand. Um, and Jules have this concept called Friends of Jules online. So, so it's literally, Jules went from a traditional kind of retailer store in the high streets, et cetera. They launched their e-commerce platform, which allowed customers to interact with them online. And essentially what Jules did, they, they enhanced the online offerings by bringing partners, distributors, uh, other kind of retailers that may be aligned to the Jules brand so that a Jules customer can go online to the Jules website, but they can actually buy from not just Jules, but also friends of Jules online. Um, so it's really creating that platform um, that, that really goes beyond the traditional restrictions of a retail model today. So very similar, if you see uh, the latest Amazon results, I think um, traditionally when Amazon started off, I think 3% of their business was from sellers and, and other vendors. But actually today, 70% of the transactions on Amazon is through um, sellers and vendors. And that is what we describe as a marketplace model. And if you look at the valuation of Amazon, actually, 
um, the, the the extremely high valuation that they've that they've received recently of up to 1.3 trillion. Uh, 50% of that is driven via their marketplace business model. So, so as you see retailers move from traditional high street merchants to online platforms, that's generally with a marketplace type play. And we see um, countries all throughout Europe embark on the same kind of journey where they're, where they're really going beyond their physical limitations to create that online marketplace experience. So, sounds fascinating, Brendan. Speaking of journeys, why don't we do this? Why don't we go back to you? You're an AE in Oracle, working away. And then the next I hear you're in London working with Zora. Tell us a little bit about what took you to London, what that experience was like. And I, I guess what it required from you to be successful in that role. Yeah, I, you know, I was thinking about this conversation that we we're going to have um, on my on my morning run, and I was thinking, geez, how, how am I how am I going to kind of describe this journey to Paul? And and I kind of go back to um, twenty ten in Ireland, right? Obviously, we'd been through a very significant recession, and we're still we were still going through it at that stage. Um, I'd been with some really great uh, local IT resellers in Ireland who, like Diatech and Ergo, were growing fantastic businesses, but obviously got slammed by the events of 2008 and 2009. And, and personally, I was looking for a little bit of security in terms of uh, my own career. And I looked at the big red machine of, Mar of uh, Oracle. I had a couple of pals in there. Um, and literally, they, they had the market traction. They were very, they were an absolute behemoth of, of an organization. It was quite interesting because I, I had interviewed with Salesforce at the same time. And if you look at both of those journeys since, right, I was I was kind of based north of Dublin. Um, had offers from Salesforce, had offers from Oracle. I chose the easy option, and Oracle were there in Clontarf, so it was a nice it was a nice easy ride in. Um, but of course, two years into that journey, um, the business started changing very significantly. And uh, um, I was initially involved in the CRM team in Oracle. We had fantastic team. I think that's where you and I first met, and we went through your Sander training, which which was magnificent, by the way, very fond memories. And, um, and yeah, after, after two years in Oracle, the business unit I was working with uh, began to wind down and I, and I started looking at other opportunities. And I think what I experienced from making that decision between Oracle and Salesforce was that sometimes you, you, you really shouldn't take the path of least resistance. Sometimes you've got to take the path less traveled. Um, and there was this funky new startup uh, that, that were opening their first office outside of Silicon Valley. Zora, they were evangelists around what they call the subscription economy. Um, and they were opening their first office in London. And, and I had a pal in Oracle who, who kind of set me up with, with a conversation, um, discussed obviously with Zora, their ambitions, what they wanted to do. They were very much in startup, but they had a really big vision. Uh, but that was going to essentially result in a very significant lifestyle change for me. Um, so, so I thought, yeah, I'm not going to repeat the sins of the past. I'm going to, I'm going to place the bet. Um, and yeah, and I, and I made the move over to London and kind of began that Silicon Valley kind of SaaS journey from there. That must have been a culture shock for you moving from a company like Oracle in, into that. Was it a comfortable fit for you or was, did it take a long time to adjust? It, uh, Honestly, in that kind of startup environment, there's there's no time, right? It's a it's a pretty brutal environment. I think when a 
when a company is in pure startup mode, um, particularly when they're investing internationally in satellite offices, they're not, they don't have the resource to manage you locally. So essentially you're being managed from, from, from San Francisco. Um, so you've got to show early success and the pressure comes on quickly and it comes on pretty hard. So I would say it was very much a kind of sink or swim type mentality. Um, and this is where I'm extremely grateful for a company like Oracle, because actually, you know, the training we'd received in Oracle was world-class. I felt that I had the tools to be successful. I just needed the right opportunity. So, so, uh, so yeah, so, so with that, my early days in Zora, I, I, I got a few lucky breaks in the beginning and then um, really kind of operationalized those breaks and, and endorsed best practices. And yeah, over, over the course of seven years, we grew a fantastic business in, uh, in a very challenging environment. What were the key hurdles you had to overcome in those seven years? Because you went in as uh, on the ground. I think you were one of the first employees, but you went in, you were hitting the telephone essentially, and you ended up then in a leadership role. So you, you obviously yeah. grew with that as well. Yeah, exactly. It was pretty much a golden pages moments where um, we had to define the, um, the European strategy. We needed to get some quick wins to show success so that the leadership team in the US would, would obviously back us and help us add more resources. The, the type of sale in Zora was very much a business model transformation. So think of very large enterprise deals, selling to the C-suite, but also long deal cycles. Um, and that's, that's really where the almost anxiety or the, or the stress of the role came in was that on, one, on, on like one part, you're trying to really create early success, but you're also wary that you know, these, are, these are business model transformations. So these, these require very strategic engagements, often with six to nine month kind of deal cycles, um, and, you, and you really don't get a second opportunity. So, so yeah, quite a challenging environment, but I think in terms of the company vision, it had the right vision, we, we had the right strategy, and the market was coming to us, which, which, which obviously makes a very big difference. So a great example of that is if you look at the media industry in the UK, you know, they, they were built on an advertising model. So they, 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 they sell ads, right? Essentially, that's, that's how they kind of drive revenue. But back then, this once in a century shift was happening in that the advertising revenue was going to Google or was going to Facebook. It, it wasn't going from the Guardian to the Telegraph or from the Telegraph to the Financial Times. It was going to non-traditional competitors. So actually, the media industry saw its revenue sliding, uh, sliding off the tracks. So they had to react. And, and our proposition was really evangelizing around the subscription economy and, and going to market with a direct consumer strategy. And now if you, if you fast forward seven or eight years, you look at Financial Times, News UK, uh, the Economist, the Guardian, Telegraph—they're all running subscription direct-to-consumer strategies today as their as their primary revenue model. So, yeah, it was, it was a big shift at the time, long deal cycles, but but equally the market the market was pivoting towards that model. So, we believed in the vision, and we just needed to execute and 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 operationalize against that. Mm. Um, so yeah, so very different challenges early days because we were very much in evangelism mode and kind of education mode. We didn't have a mature market to sell into. We almost had to create that space. And there's a lot of doubting Thomases, right? And, uh, you know, when you're, when you're trying to throw your first event, 
in London around the subscription economy and people are kind of looking at you sideways. You're trying to invite your student friends and, and your mother and your, and, your, and, your, and your cousins just to show a bit of activity. Uh, yeah. Whereas seven years later, we're thinking how much do we charge for these events and, and who do we let in and like, who do we not? So, so very different challenges from, from startup mode to, uh, to, to post IPO or, or, sure. or, uh, or, yeah. or company maturity mode. Now, I know over those seven years, you built uh, a, a good sized team and you would have had challenges in, in doing that. And, and, and I recall you saying on a video I watched that you made some mistakes earlier in the process by hiring people like yourself. I want to talk to you about that in just a moment. Before we get there, I'm really curious. And I just went by in a whiz, but I, I, I really, we, we can't overstate the importance of this is that you were a, an AE, a rep working in Oracle, and you somehow or another convinced this American organization to take a bet on you. There were so many things that could have gone wrong with that. You said it's a long sales cycle. There was a lot of groundwork that needed to be done first. So it could have been a year before they found out that you, that you were the wrong person. Not just that, but you were relocating. There's risks that come with that. How did you convince them that you were the right guy to put into that role? Yeah, it was, um, it, for me, I mean, it was, it was a very interesting time, um, but, there's, but there's a lot of things that you can do um, to help yourself in that situation. So knowing it was a challenging sale, knowing that it was a very immature market, you've really got to think about uh, within the organization, okay, like what, what's working well? Find out what's working well and replicate that success. Um, and, and yes, it may or may not result in closing a deal, but actually at least you're showing as a, as, as a, as a great teammate, as a great employee, that you're endorsing best practices that have been established in that early stage of, of, of an organization. And I think startups have a good appreciation for that. They want to create operational consistencies, but they also want to leave plenty of room for innovation. So, so when you think about um, how they go to market and how an AE works with a BDR team or a marketing team or a sales engineering team, and most particularly in the early stages of an organization, the leadership team, I think that's really important. How you conduct yourself, how you work with senior management, uh, how much of a team player you are, uh, and how much you're willing to go above and beyond in those, in those early years of a startup organization. I think they really help create pathways for success. And yeah. then hopefully, you know, you'll obviously tie on some, some, some new logo wins and, so, and then hopefully right. kind of grow those over time. Yeah. That'll, that'll put you on that kind of fast track. I'm more curious, Brendan, about how you convinced the executives in Silicon Valley to take a bet on you to do that. Because I'm, from what you said, being an Oracle, you, they, it would have been a safer bet for them to go out and find somebody else who had experience in taking a startup from ground zero. What was it that you said to them that convinced them that you were the guy? I think a lot of it is perspective too, right? I think I think within any sales environment or sales organization, there's obviously a lot of grit is required. There's a lot of invention and innovation also required. So whether you're in a company like Oracle, and actually in my time in Oracle, we were selling a new product. We were selling, I think it was CRM on demand. It was, it was Oracle's first 
cloud CRM product. So, so we were looking to create a new market, a new space with a new team. And I think it's, it's really about thinking about how the skills you already have can be applied to the new organization, as well as your appetite to learn. And I think that's really key that at any point in your sales career, the day you think you've cracked it, it's it's over right like every day is a school day but i think i think for me that's the real key is that is that with um with the senior management team in san francisco at the time them placing their bet on me and ultimately some of my team then that i that i that i referred and hired into the business it was really about demonstrating yes i have experience i know how to close deals i have um, obviously good background good training but i've also got an appetite to learn because because the world is changing so fast right now that I think you've got to demonstrate, uh, regardless of where you are in your in your in your sales career, that ability to constantly learn new things, um, and really take an interest in 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 areas of the organization that are outside your immediate remit. Also, because I think that's the kind of profile that they're looking for within a startup environment. Now that may be very different to the types of profile that people are looking for in a much more mature organization. But I think particularly in the startup environment, it is all about dependency and 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 coupled with innovation. I think I think those two elements are really, really important. Uh, okay. hundred uh, percent couldn't agree more. Um, the, the question I wanted to ask you was about the, the the now that you're in there, you're on the ground, you're beginning to make traction, you now have to build a team. And you said you were a had a huge appetite to learn, and you had skills. And it was a case of applying them. So all of that there. The temptation then is to go out and model new hires on yourself. And I think I remember hearing you say that you your your instinct was to go and find people who looked like you and sounded like you, rather than maybe focus on the traits that it's easier to. If, if they look and sound like us. Tell us about that, what your experience was of building that first team and where it was in that journey, you realized that I needed to have more diversity in the team without losing the necessary traits to be successful, but having a team that was more diverse in terms of backgrounds, experience, et cetera. Yeah, it's a, it's a very, um, it's a very outstanding moment in my in my career. I had been, I think I'd been in Miracle or sorry in, in Azora for for a year and a half at that stage. And, uh, and as we were growing, I was of course referring friends. I was bringing some guys over from from uh, Ireland. They were they were kind of following the pathway, um, and we were growing. We but but we but we weren't growing fast enough to, to be to be to be quite honest. And when I look at being based in London, which is a very multicultural, very diverse city, and you know, even when I when I when I look at Dublin now, it it, it has changed a lot, even even since those days. But being in London and selling to a diverse customer base right around Europe, um, it was it like embarrassingly, it wasn't pointed out by me. It actually had to be said to me by uh, by 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 one of my peers, and it was said in a very informal manner. It was actually based on water cooler type conversations that we were having um and 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 it was my it was my marketing director at the time she said brendan like i just want you to hold fire open your ears and listen to the types of conversations that are going on in the office 
And I was like, I had this epiphany. I was like, I was mortified, right? And I was like, I was like, shit, like we've literally built this team to be a replica of the types of sales reps that, uh, that, that, that I perceived I had been in my, in my Oracle days. So, so we realized very quickly that we needed to become more diverse. We needed to pivot. We needed very different profiles. Um, if we were going to be successful at the rate that we wanted to grow at, which, and we had very ambitious rates at the time, we wanted to grow 100% year on year, um, but we also wanted to sell into a very diverse customer base too. So uh, we did that and, uh, and we did reap the rewards very, very quickly. I mean, it was quite, remar- it was embarrassing at, at like how quickly it, it um, happened, but, uh, but yeah, it was, a, it was a major lesson that I picked up Luckily, early and before I'd become a manager, yeah. um, but it really defines how I've kind of built teams since in okay. terms of having really kind of diverse profiles within, within, within the organization. I'm curious, Brendan, when your marketing director said, have a listen, what did you hear that, that made you feel this is an issue? That It's one thing to, to hear that there's a familiarity here. This all sounds the same. That in itself is not necessarily an issue. Like a football team could be made up of players from the same backgrounds, same accents, talking about the same things of the day. That doesn't necessarily mean they're a bad or ineffective football team. So what was it in, the, in, the, in your context that you said, ah, this is a problem? And then the second part of the question I have for you is, some of the challenges in managing a diverse team. So talk to me about the, the breakthrough. Go a little bit deeper on that for me, please. Yeah, so, so as much as I love success and you know, seeing people win, I'm far more interested in why we don't win deals. And when, when I was asked to listen, it was actually in a forecast meeting and we were talking about uh, deals. We had, we had three levels, we had we had commit, stretch, and best case deals, and we'd kind of talk about the deals and and uh, describe them in 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 a very similar fashion. Um, and and what I picked up on was was the excuses of why we weren't winning deals. And it was it was literally a replica of um, of of why I had lost deals in the past for all of the wrong reasons, right? That that we weren't investing in the right resources at the right time through the right channel for our prospects. Uh, we weren't qualifying accordingly. We were very careless in terms of how we used resources, um, and we were and we were throwing in the same excuses. And that's that's really where it kind of um, flagged to my attention that we needed to to really think about how we go to market, and we needed to be a lot more strategic about how we served our customers. So 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 there was there was some significant learning moments through that particular forecast meeting. Um, and we obviously uh, dug a lot deeper into it and we kind of did forensic analysis around previous opportunities that we had won and previous opportunities that, that uh, we had lost. And we found that um, sometimes the profile was more an inside sales type profile where we needed more experienced field sales people who were in region um, and could understand some of the cultural nuances into, for example, selling into a technology company in Germany versus selling into a media organization in Stockholm are two very different types of sales cycles. There's a lot of commonalities across the sales cycles, but there's also a lot of cultural nuances that uh, that we probably didn't have the experience of identifying at, at that particular time. So that, that really informed how we uh, built the team from there. We actually went towards much more of a pod model. We were thinking of 
If you look at the Dublin model, it's very much like an inside sales type model supplemented by feel. But actually, we turn that on its head um, literally because, the, like again, the type of sale that we had in Zora was a very C-level executive-led type sale where we were selling into the chief financial officer. We were selling into the chief executive officer because it had the complexity of a business model transformation, which obviously needs to start at the top and work its way down. Uh, with an inside sales team, we were starting at the bottom and working our way up, which, uh, which, which, which proved not to be as effective as we would have wanted at the time. So was that you were then just saying that we needed we needed to we needed different roles in the team with, with different experience. For example, if I continue with the football analogy, that maybe you know everybody's a midfielder or a defender and what you needed were strikers. Or or is there something else? I guess what I'm what I'm kind of struggling to understand is that from what you're saying is I can hear there was a an experience gap. And maybe there was a cultural gap in, you mentioned into the German market that perhaps you needed somebody who was a native German speaker, for example, who understood of that culture. It, it, was that the extent of it or were there other aspects that, of the team that needed to be more diverse? There were other areas. It was more around the, um, not just the sales profiles that we hired, but also the supporting team uh, that, that, that worked across those engagements. So. Uh, we obviously had started with the typical AESE type type model, uh, but what we weren't doing, for example, is building business cases. So, so how do we bring in uh, platform advisory people to work on uh, business cases to, 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 to justify this type of business model transformation? We were very much focused on the tech. So it's like we had a bunch of defensive midfielders, but maybe no strikers in that kind of business case area. So, so it was a little bit of both. It was a little bit of experience, and it was a little bit of the types of profiles and, and, and how we set ourselves up for success to help our prospects embark on this type of transformation discussion. Because again, one of the big challenges that we had was that everybody loved our kind of key message, right? The, the world is changing. Uh, we're, 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 we're shifting from monetizing products to monetizing relationships. We're gonna do that via a subscription or recurring revenue strategy. Which, which was an awesome meeting to, to, to attend for anybody, but, but it, may, it may or may not have been qualified accordingly to create the right level of traction, which meant that we then began investing the wrong resources in the wrong conversations, and then wondering why all of our deals were blowing up at, at, uh, at the end of a quarter, having been forecasted so positively, positively for, for, for the previous nine or 10 weeks. I'm curious to know what role your your team in the States played in this. I'm wondering if they were looking at this early days, pointing out things to you, or were you just given free reign to make these mistakes, or let's not call them mistakes, observations and pivots um, along yeah. the way? So, so I guess at the time, um, we, had, we, had a, we had a standard kind of operating model or, or, or standard sales engagement. But but it wasn't it wasn't really well enforced and uh, and we probably didn't invest initially in the enablement functions to support that not just for the onboarding process but for the constant um, learnings of the fields to be redeployed across a global sales team so so again and that's it's probably one of the challenges of a startup environment compared to a more mature um, sales and uh, sales organization or or, or post IPO type type company. 
where, where we really had to invest in a lot of the support functions to enable the field. The other complexity we had was that in the US, our, our team were very successful selling to other Silicon Valley organizations, right? The, the, the SaaS model had exploded. They had such a long runway in terms of supporting technology companies, but actually in Europe at the time, the software as a service model wasn't very mature. There were some cool startups at the time, but, but primarily we were focused on different uh, industries like the media industry, for example, and like the manufacturing industry, for example. So, so, so we did have slightly different um, prospect lists and, and, and therefore slightly different sales engagements. There were commonalities, uh, but there were also significant differences that, that, that forced a different composition of a team in Europe, Middle East and Africa compared to our team in the US. And then when, you, when, you, when you tag on some of the additional complexities around culture, language, et cetera, um, it, it, then, it then requires even more investment uh, where, where you begin to think of, okay, we probably now have a more expensive cost of acquisition model or growth efficiency model in Europe compared to, compared to the US. I have a question, Brendan, I'll come to in a moment. It's about luck and what, ro look, what role luck plays. Um, before I come to that, talk to me a little bit about the challenges managing a diverse team. Because I would assume that that's going to that was a learning curve for you as well. Yeah, um, I had a very recent challenge in uh, as recent as October, where I was presenting to my French team, and I was talking about staying in the fight right up to the very end, and I showed the Johnny Sexton drop goal uh, from <laughs> from a couple of years ago, which, which actually did not. One of, one of my interns had, had edited the video to show it. Once the ball goes over the bar, he showed the French soccer World Cup winning side. So, so, so the message was maintained, but not delivered the way I wanted it to be. But, um, but no, it's, I, I think it's, it's, it's very important. And, and, and the biggest challenges are essentially your own bias, right? And, 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 and your own personal experience. Um, and I think one of the keys to overcoming those challenges is um, listening to your team, right? You've got to, You've got to pay attention to your field sales organization. They're in the field. They're they're the kind of front line. They're picking up a lot of uh, the instant feedback from prospects and also customers alike. And you've really got to be maniac and, and and very serious in terms of how you take that feedback. Some of it may not be legitimate, but but a lot of it will be. And I think in terms of particularly selling cross-culturally also in, in, a, in a different regions, you've got to be very respectful of some of those kind of nuances per region. There will be a commonality whereby if you're demonstrating value and the customer subscribes to that value, you're in business, you've got a deal, right? But even within that kind of framework, you've also got to be extremely respectful and conscious of, um, of, 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 of some of those local nuances. Um, and again, reflected in how you manage your team, um, more recent negative feedback I've had is that I always use sporting analogies, right? But but 60% of my team today don't play sports, male and female. And they're like, like we don't want to hear any more sports analogies. So, so I'm furiously working behind the scenes to work on movie themes, book themes, theater themes, and anything to get away from sport themes. So, so I think you do have to take this feedback on board, but, you, but most importantly, you've got to create an environment whereby your team don't think twice about being transparent and being in a position 
to offer feedback um, and, and, and feeling that, that, that their contribution is being acknowledged, is being taken very seriously. Because I think when you do create that environment, actually the spoils are enormous. You see amazing profiles from junior profiles who've just joined the organization, closing extremely high value deals. And then you may well see very experienced sales reps you know, coming in mid fifties, or actually they're running around like a 25 year old because they're so invigorated by the message and the vision and the mission of, of uh, your organization. So you should always be willing to be very pleasantly surprised uh, because I think when you, when you create that culture, um, it really pays off uh, like obviously quickly with people that you onboard and, and really adopt to that new culture instantly, but, but, but also over time where, where you're building a very trusting environment that ultimately anybody feels that they can join and be very successful in. I think, uh, mm. I think that's really key to building a very successful sales organization. Mm. I, I, I think um, one of the things, again, could be quite, quite easy to miss out on the importance. You said something interesting about the sports analogies and two things struck me about it. One was your willingness to be vulnerable and say, look, I, I was, I've, I've, I got this feedback. I was doing too much of this. And it was this automatic acceptance of, yeah, you know what? That's true. I, I need to do better. I need to do, to find something else where we can establish common ground in order to communicate. And I think that's a, that's something that's in common with all the really, really good leaders is the willingness to be vulnerable and, and know that you're always learning. So kudos on that one. Again, it's not everybody would, 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 would admit to that. But it also, the, the second part of which I think was more interesting to me was the challenge it poses that when you've got a, a, a non-diverse team, communication is a lot easier because we're using metaphors, we're using analogies that everybody understands. But when you've got a very diverse team, then a lot of the tools that we ordinarily rely on and are familiar with become less effective and we need to find new tools. And I'm curious to know how you go, how, how you went about doing that. Yeah. So again, I, I think a really important part of that is creating an environment that is transparent, that, that anybody can participate in, but within that environment, you create um, very clear direction and very clear leadership around, for example, a sales methodology and also terminology in terms of how you think about your, your deals, your opportunities, creating that kind of commonality within a diverse group that gives people the, um, the, the direction required to be able to communicate cross-functionally, cross-teams, cross-borders, whatever it is. I think, I think those, two key, th those two pillars are really important. And then once you've done that, you obviously need to step back a little bit and, and leave that room for, 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 for innovation. Um, the danger of, of not being open to feedback and not receiving any feedback is you'll get isolated very, very quickly because if your team don't feel that, uh, that they're being listened to or that they're in a positive environment with shared objectives and shared goals and for some reason, for, for, for whatever reason, people are singing from different hymn sheets, um, that is a that is a that is a misfiring sales organization, um, and 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 breaks up very quickly. And I think, you know, over the course of my career, I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, I feel like I feel I've, I've like personally, I, I've I've definitely made the vast majority of the mistakes that that um, that you can make. 
uh, and I think I will continue to making those mistakes, but but hopefully not repeat them. I think that's that's a really key area is that is that as you learn more about your team and as you learn more about successful enterprise software sales environments, you have to come up with your recipe or your cookbook as you used to describe it back then to know what drives success for you. And then when I think about my own role and the types of organizations that I work in, it's also really important to back yourself. Once you have that cookbook down, once you have your methodology down, don't try and, don't try and go too far beyond um, organizations that are maybe not a fit for your experience or for your, for your um, preferences. For example, I love business model transformation, right? I love a nightmare of a sale, right? It is, they are long deal cycles, but they are highly valuable. It requires the entire village to participate in that sale. It's a very kind of expensive um, cost of acquisition because it involves a highly functional marketing team, BDRs, SEs, solution consultants, platform advisories to create clarity around this business model transformation. But that's, that's what I know I'm good at. If I was to move into a kind of tactical SMB, kind of fast moving sales organization, I'm probably not the right guy for that, right? Uh, I would have to unlearn and, and like relearn a lot of, a lot of that methodology and, and, uh, and their business model. So, so I think you've also got to back yourself and know where you're comfortable. Um, unless of course you're willing to, to like take a step back and relearn to hopefully be armed with, with like, with like multiple sales practices. So, so yeah, I think there's a, there, there's constant decisions to be made at, at each stage of your career. Um, but you should also trust yourself and, uh, and, and, and your experience, as long mm. as you're learning from, from any, from any mistakes that you do make along the way. Mm. I, I guess what you're also saying there is, there's an element where the diversity is has its absolutely has its place but there's also it's it, it's 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 in parenthesis and what i mean by that is you said that you thrive in a long sales cycle big challenges marshalling resources and taking that deal over the line very very different challenge to high speed commodity tactical type sales I guess also that so that it's that that's, that's not diversity of experience. That's diversity, I guess, of uh, traits, characteristics, comfort zones, etc. And that if you are going to hire people, that there are certain things that they have to have that are like you, and then there's other things that they have to have in ter terms of diversity of thought, experience, etc. That expand what it is you're doing as a team. Yeah, and, and, and I think particularly in a leadership role, recognizing your strengths is fantastic, but recognizing your weaknesses is, is far more important. And, and, and having the ability to hire people who can complement your world, your experience, your background, your kind of practice, that's really, really important too. So, so when you think about um, your team and particularly when you become a manager of managers, um, I think that's a really important aspect uh, for any um, growing leader, right? Is, is that it's, it's fine to have weaknesses as a leader, right? But, but as long as you acknowledge them and hire people who can, who can complement you in that role to kind of fill those gaps or, or grow the business in new areas, I think you've got to have that kind of self-awareness for the benefit of the company, but also for the benefit of your team so that your team know where to go 
to get the right kind of to get the right kind of advice that they're seeking. If it's if it's technical advice on a deal around a particular integration point, I'm probably not your guy, right? But I've got a fantastic sales engineering leader who is, you know, forensic about understanding API structures, et cetera. And my team know he is the guy to go to to resolve that particular challenge. And I think once you, again, once you create that ecosystem and you create the um, clarity of communication lines within your team as a leader, I think that's really important for a high functioning sales team. Yeah. What well, question here was what part does look play in success, do you believe? Uh, everybody needs a little bit of luck. Um, but I think in order to be lucky, you've you've also gotta you've also gotta be in the right place at the right time. You know, I go back to my early days in Zora, you know, being managed from San Francisco, you've got you've got an eight, sometimes nine hour time zone difference. Um, and being managed from San Francisco, you don't you don't get calls from nine to five, right? You're going to get calls at six a.m. before your sales leaders is tucking it. Well, just after he's tucked his or her kids in, going to bed, they might want to shoot the breeze on um, on 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 what the strategy is for the subsequent week. So I think it's um, it is it is a matter of the harder you work, the luckier you'll get. Um, but but there is an element of of absolutely being in the right place at the right time. But you've also got to capitalize on that look. You've got to learn from it. You've got to know when you were lucky and what kind of created the environment that that enabled that 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 element of uh, of a uh, look. And equally, I mean, I've seen people join organizations where the worst thing that can happen to them is they join a new organization and they land a monster deal in their first three months. And I think, ah, oh, this is easy. This is great. Mm. I'm in a hyper growth organization. These million dollar deals come all the time. And, uh, and nine months later, they're no longer with the organization because you know, outside of closing deals, your managers are thinking about pipeline creation, contacts, running events, being an ambassador for, 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 for the organization. You know, the reality is, is that as all of these technology companies grow, there's so many more data points for you to understand your prospects, but also for managers to manage their teams internally. Um, and, 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 and although luck is a great thing, it's not something that's going to sustain you over, over a long period of time. So, so while, 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 while very helpful, um, don't bet your career on it. That's, that's, that's the best advice I can give. Sage advice. Absolutely. Um, you obviously experienced a, a, a jolt going from Oracle into Zora in terms of very different environment. You're, you're in startup type environment and you don't have the same supports that you do in a big organization. What was it like going from Zora into Miracle? What were, what were the changes that you experienced, both cultural and in terms of experience? Yeah, so um, I used to, so going from startup to post IPO in Zora, I used to tell my team, look, February 1st was the beginning of our new financial year. And, and I always told my team, I said, look, like, like what, what happened last year, think of it as a different company because there's a new game every year and it's, and it's new challenges. They come with new expectations, targets go up, ambition grows. Um, and whatever happened the previous 12 months is no longer sufficient for the next 12, 24 or 36 months. So you always had to get into that headspace that yes, you're in the same company, but the company is gonna change. Uh, and, and one of the great quotes I heard was, if you rage against the machine, 
the machine will break you every time, right? So, so, so you've got to be agile, you've got to be adaptable, you've got to be able to go with that, with that change, whether you like it or not. Sometimes it's about sucking it up, keeping your head down, and, and, and just riding out those kind of waves of change that, that constantly happen with, for example, a new chief revenue officer or a new president comes or a new chief sales officer. And they've got very different ideas compared to how the company has grown over the last three to four years. Um, and that's something I was very conscious of that we experienced a lot of that in Zora. I mean, we, we, had, like, we had chaos internally as we were growing. It doesn't look like that from the outside in, but from the inside out, it's, uh, it's, it's an absolute roller coaster ride. So, so something I was very conscious of was having experienced that in Zora, when I made the move to Miracle, I really wanted to make sure that I got it right first time and that I learned from um, all of my experiences, the good, the bad, and the ugly in Zora. So um, figuring out who were the kind of hero sellers, super managers, um, it was really great. Miracle were so good to me in that they were very transparent in terms of the types of organization that I was joining. They built a phenomenal company in Paris, uh, but they really wanted to grow internationally. Um, and that's exactly what we're focused on right now. So it's about taking all of those best practices from the Paris office and sharing them out through all of our satellite offices in London, in Stockholm, in Amsterdam, in, 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 in Munich, in Milan, in Barcelona. And again, it's about over-communicating. I think when there's a lack of communication, it creates not suspicion, but just doubt and, and really lack of clarity around, are we going in the right direction? And, and, and like, are we doing the right things? So I think a really key point for a leader is as you embark on that kind of hyper growth situation, you've got to over communicate and you've also got to use the, the, the really kind of hero performers within your organization and leverage their best practices to, to, to participate in that onboarding experience for both new employees that are joining internationally and also other people who want to grow within the organization once they've joined and kind of found their feet. So it's a constant evolution, it's a constant process, but, but as a leader, you cannot do it on your own. You've got, to bring, you've got to bring the team with you. And in particular, you've got to bring your kind of hero performers, no matter what level they're at within your organization, you've got to bring them on that, on that kind of journey with you. If, you. if you come in and try and reinvent the wheel and break everything up, you'll generally cause a reset that might set you back 12 or 18 months. How do you spot those hero performers? Because they don't always self-identify. They do. They always self-identify. Not, not directly, but indirectly. I think it's, um, you know, joining a new team, you obviously want to create a vision. You want to create clarity. You want to create transparency. But you also want to observe. And I think you've got to be really maniacal in terms of how you look at the different departments or potential silos within your organization. So lots of observation, lots of listening. Um, and, and, and quite often those performers will come to you because particularly within a startup environment, you know, they are completely clued in to the company's success and growth. And they generally have shared ambitions and shared objectives to a hyper growth organization. So I think it's, it's being open to those conversations and also bringing them on that kind of change process management whereby as you're changing the nature of an organization should that be your mandate that you bring these people with you as part of that change it'll work out most times it won't work out all the time and i think as a leader you've got to be prepared for that conversation too that that you know maybe you've maybe you've met a hero performer who's potentially at the end of their 
the end of the rope in terms of in in, in terms of working with with your organization. And I think you've got to be able to respect that. I think don't don't fight it, but but generally people will decide whether they want to participate in the the new vision that you're that you're creating for the organization and the new step of the journey that you that that that, that ultimately you want to bring people along in. We're up against it, Brendan, on the clock, and I had a final question I wanted to ask you. We have got about six minutes left. Was I'm really curious to know your experiences of the difference between working in a U.S. culture. I know you were based in London, but in, in, in the U.S., that corporate U.S. culture type environment, Oracle will be a good example, and, and Zora. And, and now you're working for a European country setting up European satellite offices. What are, they, what are the, the standout differences and where have, you had, where have you found yourself having to adapt? So... I kind of referred earlier on to taking calls at 6 a.m. and weekends and whatnot being managed from San Francisco. I think it's true that European organizations are, they're, they're a little bit more uh, lefty, let's call them, a little bit more kind of respectful of uh, work-life balances. Um, but I will also say within Miracle, I mean, we've got, we've got incredible ambition. We've just received $300 million of funding from Permira, We've got 100% year-on-year growth ambitions. Um, we're on a very important stage of our journey. We're looking at a potential IPO, I imagine, in the next couple of years. Um, so, so yeah, there's there's a lot of there's there's far more commonalities than there are differences because those types of organizations that want to grow incredibly fast, they have a very similar DNA, uh, and they'll generally hire people who are familiar with that kind of rate of growth or bring new people with them who have the same kind of ambition. Um, so I'd say there, there are some slight differences, but there's far more commonalities, I would say, between those types of organizations than, um, than, than, than maybe the, the geographical location will potentially represent. Brendan, it's, it's really fascinating listening to you that it's the, it's, it's the journey, the the challenges we come up against, what we learn along the way that makes it always so interesting. And uh, I, I didn't know what to expect from this conversation because it's been a long time since we've spoken, but I, I've really found it really interesting. Your insights are, uh, they're, they're, they're stimulating, they're, they're, they're incredible. They're just to, I, I could listen to you all day. And I'm, I'm sure I have more, so, so many more questions I'd love to talk to you about, maybe on another occasion. But uh, I, we are just up against the clock on time. I want to thank you so much for being my guest today. Thank you for those who joined us live for this conversation this afternoon. Uh, Brendan Watch has been my guest. Thank you, Brendan. It's been a real pleasure.